Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the second half of 1 Kings chapter 3 this morning, particularly verses 16 to 28. 1 Kings chapter 3. A well-known story that comes early in the reign of Solomon, a story that comes after what we heard last week, after Solomon's well-known request for wisdom where he prayed and then the Lord endowed him with an incredible spiritual gift of wisdom. And the story we see today is the first example given of Solomon's wisdom displayed and evidenced. So let's see what God would speak to us from 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28. This is God's holy word. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then, on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone, and there was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two. And give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. The other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. May God add his blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his holy word. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with uh, the story of Rachel Den Hollander, who worked tirelessly to expose the many crimes of Larry Nasser. Um, who was um, a medical um, worker with uh, Olympic gymnasts, and he um, abused and committed crimes against many young female gymnasts. And Den Hollander was one of these girls he abused. And she worked tirelessly, and over 10 years, eventually was able to expose his crimes, bring him to justice. It's a really remarkable story. And Crimes and criminals, we understand, they want to keep their crimes hidden. They do not want them to come to light. 
But sadly, often, victims and survivors of these sorts of abuses, they don't come forward either. They keep these crimes hidden. Why? Because often, even for those who have been hurt and abused, just exposing that brings them pain. It makes them feel shame. And so there are pressures for both abusers and the abuse to hide what happens, to not expose it. But Rachel and Hollander uh, boldly and courageously exposed, and she made a path for many other girls to bring forward these stories of hurt. And what I want us to see in this story today is that all of us have sins that we would love to keep hidden. But we also, many of us, have great hurts that we also often keep hidden and suppressed. And the only hope for both sinners and for sufferers today is found in Jesus. And that we don't need to be afraid to expose either our darkest sinful secrets or our deepest hurts to Christ. Because Christ is the one who is the hope for both sinners and sufferers. Jesus is the hope, and that's what we'll see in this story today. And so let's take a look at this story, let's really dive into this narrative, and see how we see that the hope of justice before the king for both sinners and sufferers. Take a look at verse 16 in your Bibles. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Right away, we need to stop and just recognize who these women are that are coming before Solomon. These are two prostitutes the people looked down upon in society. Women who were most likely either widowed by their husbands or abandoned by their families and brought into a state of vulnerability and destitution to the point where they're desperate enough to engage in this sort of lifestyle. Two hurting, desperate women living in sin but also suffering. And here's what happens to these two women. Verse 17. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone, and there was no one else in the house with us. Only we two were in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So these two prostitutes are roommates. They're living in the same place, and there's no one around. There's no clients at this time. And they both are pregnant within a really close time period to each other. Both of them, from the narrative it tells, they were both excited about giving birth. They both wanted to see a child born to them. And the second woman, her newborn, she ends up just in a terrible accident. She smothers her child in the night. And her son dies. It's just an incredibly awful tragedy to not just lose a child, but to lose a child in that manner. She must have been just in the greatest um, shock, uh, just the terror, the depths of, how have I done this? And it's, I think it's more than just the grief at losing a child in this terrible way, but uh, this son is also her hope. Because what did sons at this time represent, but one who would grow and who could provide economically for his mother, in a time where there weren't many economic opportunities for women. This son is potentially her only hope to escape this terrible lifestyle she's in. 
And so she's lost this hope. She's lost the joy of a child. And therefore, she comes into a state of desperation. This woman is desperate to regain what she's lost. She can't cope with this incredible void that's all of a sudden opened up in her heart. And she goes to desperate measures. Look at verse 20. She arose at midnight. This is the first woman talking. The second woman arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. This desperate grieving woman goes in the cover of night thinking she can get away with the crime of kidnapping. She thinks she will fix this problem in her life by kidnapping her roommate's child. This is an extreme mood, uh, move. Kidnapping is a capital punishable crime in the Old Testament. She could die for this. But so desperate is she, she goes in the cover of night. She must have assumed these babies looked close enough alike that she could have at least had a hope of getting away with this. She does a desperate kidnapping. She tries to steal her roommate's hope and joy in order to help fill her void. A desperate move, but also a twisted, an evil thing to do. She wants to remedy her, remedy her situation at any cost. The first woman continue, continues her testimony in verse 21. She says, When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. And when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. This second woman, she didn't get away with it. The first woman noticed that the baby by her side was not her baby. She recognized that this was the other woman's baby. And this woman is found out. And you would think when confronted by her roommate, hey, you stole my child. She would have given it up. Been like, I've been caught. I've been found out. Okay, I'm so sorry. But this woman fights it. She's determined to go on with not only this crime, but this lie. Maybe she's hoping that the other woman won't take it to court. Right? These are two prostitutes. They wouldn't have had much standing, much hope of getting justice in the court of law. But the, the first woman, instead of taking matters into her own hands, say fighting, wrestling her roommate to get her baby back, she goes through the channels of justice. She appeals to the courts to resolve this dispute. But as it turns out, no one can figure out the truth. It's a she said versus she said. They are both saying the same words. My child is alive, yours is dead. And so it goes up through the court system, all the way to where we are at the highest court in the land, the court of King Solomon. This is like the Supreme Court in Israel. These two prostitutes have a hearing before the king. No one else could get to the truth. No one else could determine who was right and who was wrong. And so they are at Solomon's mercy. And for the woman whose child had been stolen, this is her last hope. If Solomon cannot determine the truth and restore to this woman her child, she really has no more recourse, except for maybe violence. On her behalf, this woman is going to be desperate to see justice done. If only Solomon can come to the truth. And so how does Solomon respond? 
Solomon summarizes the situation in verse 23. The king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive and yours is dead. The other says, No, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought to the king. You wonder, what were people thinking? Why is Solomon asking for a sword? And the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. What a shocking command. Um, this is must, must come as a shock to everyone in the room. Divide the child, give half to the one and half to the other. This is wild. We, we know, reading this, that Solomon doesn't actually intend to execute this command, but he is using this as, as a move, an, an ingenious move to expose the truth. By issuing this extreme command, he hopes to reveal the hearts of these women and expose the truth of the situation. And so here's what happens after Solomon gives this drastic command. Verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Right here, these women's hearts are exposed. The first woman, we're told, her heart yearned for her son. The literal rendering of this is that her bowels or her gut, her intestines burned for her son. It's that, that feeling of that pain um, that you might feel as a parent sometimes, where it's a mix of love but also pain towards your children that just feels like your stomach's up in knots. Her heart is yearning for her son. She's inflamed her motherly affection and love. She's willing to even lose her son from her own life in order that his life may be preserved. Her heart is exposed as a heart of loving compassion. But the false mother's heart is exposed as a heart of envy. A heart of envy that says, if I can't have a child, no one can. If I will not have my son, you shall not have yours. Actually, I shall take what is yours and give it to me. And if that doesn't work... Neither of us get a child. Both hearts are exposed at an instant in time. And this second woman, she's willing to take a lose, lose, lose scenario. That's what's being offered by Solomon here. First woman, you lose the child. Second woman, you lose the child. Child, you lose your life. So envious and um, so envious is this woman's heart that she's willing to take this terrible lose, lose, lose scenario. And I think just there's one thing for us to learn here is just this is an excellent illustration of a heart of envy. A heart of envy. And there's a really wonderful book by um, a professor named Rebecca Koningdike de Young called Glittering Vices. It's a contemporary look at the seven deadly sins. And she has a chapter in there on envy, which I just highly recommend to your reading. It's a really, really insightful book. But here's what she says of envy. She says that envy's view of the world is as essentially antagonistic. It's me versus you. My good or your good, never both. Envy does not want to, someone else to win. Would rather them both lose than someone else win and you lose. This woman in the story is envious. She has an antagonistic view towards her roommate. Again, um, Rebecca DeYoung says, the envious person resents another person's good gifts because they are superior to his or her own. And by comparison, 
Their superiority makes you feel your own lack and your own inferiority more acutely. And that's definitely what's happening here. The fact that this second woman lost her child, the fact that the first woman has a child, this emblem of joy, that increases her pain. It increases her sense of loss. And it, be, it increases it to the point where it's utterly intolerable for her. She, she has such envy that she cannot allow this distance between them that she must tear down the other woman. She must pull her low in order to lift herself up. This is what an envious heart does. And thinking about this, I was just thinking about um, when I was in high school, I had some friends that came from a foreign country and they said this sort of competitive envy was rife in the schools they had come from, where the, where the top students, kids were so envious of them that they would put extra locks on their locker so they couldn't access their learning materials. They would glue the pages of their textbook together so that they couldn't study for their exams. Envious, pulling down the high to lift the self up. But her envious heart is exposed. Her envious heart is revealed in the sight of all, through Solomon's wise, wise work. She had been able to hide it up till this point, but now it's exposed. The hearts of both women are exposed. A compassionate heart versus an envious heart. And Solomon sees this. Everyone around sees this. And so Solomon responds in verse 27 saying, Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, she is his mother. The child is restored to his mother. This woman who was on her last hope of justice. Justice is done and she receives back what was taken for her. Her joy, her hope is restored to her. Notice that we actually don't hear what happens to the other woman. We don't hear what penalty was given to her. Because the narrator's more concerned with the joy of the justice and restoration than he is concerned with us knowing about the penalty. Justice was done. Right prevailed in the situation. And the summary of what happens because of this is found in verse 28, where we're told that all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Solomon's judgment here, it shows to the whole nation the wisdom of God, but not just wisdom abstractly, wisdom to incisively pursue justice, to right a wrong that no one else could right. This was a display of a God-given spiritual gift of wisdom. We're going to see this wisdom displayed again and again in the life of Solomon. And here it's displayed to do justice, to do good for the people, as is a king's right. Now, what can we learn from this story? How can we see the truths pictured in this story and see how they apply to our lives? Well, I think that we can see each of ourselves displayed in each of these two women. The one with a sinful heart she doesn't want exposed. One with a suffering heart longing for justice. On the first front, we see often that we ourselves, like the, like, the, um, like the sinful woman, we have sins in our hearts that we would never want exposed. Things that we've done, thoughts that have gone on in our minds that we would never want revealed. 
And we know that before God we would stand condemned. When we, even just considering our own envy, when, when envy is exposed in our hearts, that alone is a lot enough to render us guilty. Rebecca DeYoung lists some following ways that we can notice envy. So listen and see, do any of these you think apply to your own heart and life? Where might envy be lurking in your heart? She says that envy can show itself in the following ways. Unnecessary rivalry and competition. Pleasure at others' difficulties or distresses. Reading false motives into others' behaviors. Belittling others. Falsely accusing others. Slander. Gossip. Scorn of others' abilities or their failures. Teasing or bullying. Or ridicule of persons, institutions, or ideals. Our envy alone condemns us, not to mention our idolatry, our lusts, our greed, our covetousness. And Christ, as the wise king, on the final day, he will expose all the hiddenness of our hearts. All our envy exposed, put on display, and justice will be done. The rightful punishment of sin will be rendered on the final day through the wisdom of Christ. But in the mercy of God, in the wisdom of Christ, he allows our sinful motives to be exposed now. Just as Solomon's sword, that call for the sword, exposed the heart of envy, so the sword of the word of God exposes what is hidden in our own hearts. That's what Hebrews 4.12 tells us, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God's word comes and it cuts us. It opens up and reveals before our own eyes the sinfulness of our own motives, the darkness that lurks within. And although this might be painful, this is a mercy. Because if you have had the darkness of your heart exposed, we are called to go to the king and ask for his mercy, to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if we, out of a heart of trust in Christ, ask him for forgiveness, the sword that's meant to pierce us in judgment is a sword that we see has fallen on Christ, who takes the punishment our sins deserved. And so you don't want to wait for the final day, the day of your death for all your sins to be revealed. Confess them now to Jesus. That's a mercy of his, that you get to confess them. Because if you confess them, he is faithful and just not just to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you see yourself like this woman, one who has actually hurt others, one who has abused in word or deed, done wrong, you don't have to be afraid to let your heart be known to the king. Because if you can reveal even these deep, dark parts of your heart, God loves to forgive those who call on him. Christ's body was divided and broken that we might be made whole. So there is hope for sinners today in Jesus. But there's also hope for sufferers. Because you see, many of us can also see ourselves clearly in the first woman, the one who had her living child stolen from her and went on a pursuit of justice. Some of you here have had your hopes and dreams seemingly stolen from you. 
Some of you have been betrayed by someone whom you also shared a house with, like this woman. Some of you were stolen from by the people closest to you. Some of you have had those you loved taken from you. Some of you have been severely wronged and deeply hurt by people in your lives. And the question is, where can you go with your pain? Where can you go with your disappointment? Where can you go with these hurts? Maybe ones that no one even knows. Well, we learn that you don't take justice into your own hands. You don't take revenge. You don't hold on to bitterness. Neither, though, do you suppress and seek to escape and move on. No, like the woman pursuing justice, you go to the king, the wise king, the gracious king, and you supplicate him for justice. Christ is near to the brokenhearted. He loves to comfort the downcast. And when Christ is supplicated by the hurting, Christ brings the Holy Spirit who's called the comforter. And the comforter is one to administer peace and comfort even in the deepest hurts. You go to Christ for comfort now, and you go to Christ for justice. And although you may not see justice done in this life, Christ promises perfect justice in the life to come. All wrongs will be righted. Everything that's been stolen from you, everything that's been damaged you feel in you, for those in Christ, on that final day, it will all be restored. It will be renewed a hundred, a thousand, a million fold. There will be abundant restoration. This is the promise we see in Revelation 21.4 where we're told that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so you don't need to be afraid to reveal your pain to Jesus. Christ himself knew pain. Christ himself knew betrayal. Christ himself knew tremendous suffering. And he has a sympathetic, compassionate heart to the suffering. And as you open your heart to him, he loves to come near and hold it in his tender, loving hands and promise you that one day justice shall reign. One day justice shall be done perfectly. Everything wrong made right. And so the beautiful truth for us this morning is that Jesus is the hope for both sinners and sufferers. And we all are both. Jesus redeemed sinners at his first coming. And Jesus is going to restore sufferers at his second coming. And so we can look backwards and forwards. We can look backwards to the cross for forgiveness. We look forwards to heaven for justice and comfort. And we live in the tension of both now. Our king is wiser than Solomon. He's more kind than Solomon. And so we need not fear exposing our hearts to him. Expose your sin to him. Confess it. Because with him is abundant forgiveness. Expose your suffering and pain to him. Because with him is abundant comfort. And abundant hope for justice in the life to come. These are the beautiful benefits for all those who put their faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the believer has a place to go. A sure refuge for our souls. 
Lord, and though our sin would make us feel guilty and cast down to the bottom of a well, that you and your love, you lift up the downcast. You wipe away the debt of guilt that stands against all those that confess their sin and hope in Christ. Oh, Lord, would sinners put their trust in you today and find that cleansing of conscience that comes from the washing of the blood of Jesus. Lord, we know also, though, that you draw near to the brokenhearted, Lord, and we pray, Lord, for those suffering here today, that they would open their hearts to you and find you to be that shepherd, find you to be the one closer than a brother, find you to be the one of perfect love, of total kindness, of utter sympathy and compassion, and find sweet consolation in the presence of Jesus but also hope for the future. Lord, thank you that we don't need to take vengeance into our hands now. And that even as we do right to pursue justice in this world, we know that we can hope for it to be done perfectly in the world to come. Thank you, Lord, that we trust that our King will one day make everything that's wrong with the world right. He will remove from the new earth all those doers of evil. And righteousness will flourish in the kingdom of the Lamb. Help us to learn to go to Jesus, to expose ourselves to him, to find in him our true hope. In his name we ask these things. Amen. This last song of response is a song where the chorus says, Oh my soul, put your hope in God. This is a song that we're singing to ourselves. And so if you feel like you're lacking hope today, like you feel like you wonder if Christ could truly forgive you, if Christ could truly comfort you and do justice, sing to yourself and say, oh my soul, put your hope in God. If you need to be reminded of that today, remind yourself, soul, put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope in what's going to happen in this life. None of us knows. This is a world of sin and misery. We put our hope in Christ. So let's remind ourselves of this truth together.